Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to World Footprints, the multi-award winning show for travelers by travelers. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Today, we will take you to the Great Lakes state of Michigan for a look at Michigan history, traditions, and legacies that make this state that Ian and I once called home a great place to explore. Thanks, dear. Whether you want to know a little or a lot about Michigan, a visit to the Michigan Historical Center and Museum in Lansing will give you a flavor of every place in the state from Detroit, Mackinac Island, to Copper Harbor and the Upper Peninsula. We will take a tour of the museum with the help of the museum's director, Linda Endersby, and Cindy Hales, executive director of the Michigan History Foundation, to learn about the stories of the people who helped to shape Michigan. Kellogg and Dow and, um, you know, just you, those are names that we all grew up with and that we all know and we know what they do, but to really understand uh, sort of, you know, up John as a uh, small uh, neighborhood. One of Michigan's crown jewels is Mackinac Island. Since the late 19th century, the Grand Hotel has welcomed the famous from five presidents as well as families from all over to experience the grandeur of Michigan's most iconic building. With the world's longest porch, the Grand Hotel offers some of the most impressive views of Michigan and the Great Lakes, which define its geography. Hotel historian and concierge Bob Taggett's takes us on a journey inside the rich history and traditions of the Grand Hotel. The front of the hotel um, was 440 feet long, and now it's 660 feet long. But the greatest myth and the most fun story about our long front porch was W. Stuart Woodfield, when he bought us out of bankruptcy, uh, he didn't have money for advertising to promote the hotel. And there was a little ad, a little cartoon in newspapers across the country that he was fascinated with. It was called Ripley's Believe It or Not. Finally, we share the legacy of a family deeply intertwined in the history of Michigan and Mackinac Island. The Shepplers, the namesake behind Shepplers Mackinac Island Ferry. This multi-generational family enterprise has transported legions to and from Mackinac Island from Mackinac City and St. Ignace. Chris Shepler shares his family's legacy, their passion for customer service, philanthropy, and gives Tanya a thrill of a lifetime. And as we have uh, Tanya driving here, we're going to go right towards that, that uh, white water tower right okay. there. So that's your, that's your aiming point. Okay. Straight, straight on. Yes. Okay. We hope you'll enjoy the history, traditions, and legacies of Michigan on today's show. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and this is World Footprints. Visit and connect with us at worldfootprints.com. Whether you want to know a little or a lot about Michigan, a visit to the Michigan Historical Center and Museum in Lansing, Michigan, will give you a flavor of every place in the state, from Detroit and Mackinac Island to Copper Harbor in the Upper Peninsula. We will take a tour of the museum with the help of the museum's director, Linda Endersby, and Cindy Hales, executive director of the Michigan History Foundation, to learn about the stories of the people who helped to shape Michigan. So, Linda, as we, as we walk into this, uh, this historical center, um, we're greeted with this huge, beautiful tree uh, surrounded in a... Well, it explains this atrium-type feature. 
Well, this is actually part of the original architectural design for the building. Cindy? Yeah, so this is, this is me. Um, so the architect on this building is uh, William Kessler, who was a pretty famous architect in the state of Michigan. Um, uh, Minoru Yamasaki, mm -hmm. that's probably a name you know. Yes, who designed uh, the World Trade, Trade Center, Center. Correct. Trade Center 1 and the pavilion at Wayne State University. Yes, and actually many other things in yes. the state of Michigan. Um, so very famous architect. Um, William Kessler was a protege of his, and he was actually selected to build this building. And one of the things that was important to Kessler was this idea of how we really show the state of Michigan through the design, and his idea was to, to the extent possible, incorporate sort of the natural resources of the state. So literally the building was designed and built around this white pine tree, which is um, what you see in the middle here. Um, and then throughout the building you'll see a lot of art, mm -hmm. and the artists were really selected for the building um, in part for their ability to represent those natural resources. And so the pond here, which actually does have water in it sometime, um, is a tile mosaic that was designed by a Michigan artist mm. um, to sort of reflect the water of the, of the state. As we toured the museum learning of Michigan's contributions to the Civil War, we came across an unexpected expected discovery that would have a special meaning to Tanya. Um, we also have here the 102nd U.S. Um, Colored Regiment and the 1st Michigan um, Colored Volunteer Infantry, which hmm. did play some pivotal roles. So. Just to hold, you should take a look at the Colored Regiment photo over there. There is someone who is related to you there. Really? What? Yes. Oh, really? Yeah. My family, I come from a very, very old Lansing family. Oh. And so mm -hmm. I have the left and the tires. Right here. Oh, oh my God. From like Ottawa. Yeah. That's <laughs> 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 interesting. <laughs> wow. Okay, can you please? Of course. That is so cool. Who would have thunk? Well, this is this is why I keep a keen eye, and I try to remember a lot of these things. And uh, here, so. my dad were, I lost my dad two years ago, and the last time he had in the family. Oh. I'm, I'm curious. Another question for both you, Cindy, and you, Linda. Is there? How do you learn about all elements of a lot of aspects of Michigan history here? Is there part of our history that has surprised you. Or do you have a favorite uh, Michigan history story? Um, one of the things I had mentioned earlier was the idea of Michigan statehood and how Michigan in some ways felt they got the worst part of a deal because they had to give up Toledo and the port there to get that sort of empty, useless upper peninsula, and yet, <laughs> the, uh, you know, the resources that are up there are a huge part of what built Michigan into what it is, having the copper and all that stuff that came in the upper peninsula that it seems like they didn't want to begin with. That, to me, is one of the most interesting stories that I've come across. <laughs> I think, um, for me, it was backing up from um, it, the 
where we just came, looking at manufacturing and the industrial revolution, um, and really understanding the history of some of those, um, you know, forefathers in terms of Kellogg and Dow and um, you know, just you, those are names that we all grew up with and that we all know and we know what they do, but to really understand uh, sort of, you know, Upjohn as a uh, small uh, neighborhood pharmacy, right, <laughs> um, you know, apothecary and growing into the, the company it is. So right. I think it's really interesting to, to look back further than um, sort of where we typically do. Mm-hmm. The, the history, I think, here is a lot richer than most people think. You know, a lot of people, and, and I'm being biased as a, you know, uh, a, a Midwesterner, um, you know, a lot of people really dismiss the, the role that the Midwest played, Midwest states have played in the development of our country and just, you know, all of the, um, God, I mean, we just came from the industrial room, you know, <laughs> look at everything that we brought to this country. Um, so, proud to be a Michigander. <laughs> Yay! In spite of the hard times that have fallen on the automotive and industrial powerhouse, Michigan's contributions in other areas, such as music, particularly Motown music, remain a strong source of pride. Our mission is not just to preserve the history, but to educate and present that history 
Um, it's not enough just to preserve it if people don't really know about it or understand it. So last question before we wrap is how can people learn more about the Historical Center, the Historical Foundation, and uh, do, do support and to see what new exhibits you have coming up? Um, for the Historical Center, um, they can call the main number. We have a website, michigan.gov slash MHC, and also there's seekingmichigan.org, which presents a lot of history. Um, and for the foundation, Cindy? It's uh, michiganhistory.org. Okay. Information about the work that we do through the foundation and how people can support um, support the foundation, which in turn supports lots of different things here at the mm -hmm. museum and in the archives as well. Wonderful. Well, thank you both so much uh, for hosting us here, for taking us on a journey through my home state of Michigan and uh, for teaching me and, and my husband uh, some things that we didn't know about this wonderful state. The state that looks like a mitten on the map for anybody who doesn't know where Michigan is. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh -huh. Yes, well, we're glad that you came and spent the time. And actually, really glad that you guys found parts of pieces of yourself in the exhibit. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. that's important yeah. to us. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, yes. That's yeah. very cool. Mm -hmm. Yes, I lived in Massachusetts for I was in Boston for okay. a oh, right. and um, I, I will never forget being with a group of people one day and somebody said, oh, where are you from? And I said, well, I'm from Michigan. So right away they said, oh, Detroit, because of course mm -hmm. that's why I lived in the state of Michigan. But, and I said, no, I'm from a little town up here <laughs> in the north. And somebody looked at me and went, what are you doing? And I go, that's Michigan. Yeah. And Really? <laughs> Did you not take third yeah, grade geography? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, but you have to be the United States and not see that. I know, I know. It's not like a Kansas. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> After the break, it's off to Mackinac Island as we share the history and traditions of Michigan's iconic Grand Hotel. The front of the hotel um, was 440 feet long and now it's 660 feet long. But the greatest myth and the most fun story about our long front porch was W. Stuart Woodfield, when he bought us out of bankruptcy, uh, he didn't have money for advertising to promote the hotel. And there was a little ad, a little cartoon in newspapers across the country that he was fascinated with. It was called Ripley's Believe It or Not. Next, as World Footprints continues. My name is Madeline Phyllis Cunningham, a grandmother of uh, Ian and Tanya. And I just love to travel with the World Footprints. I enjoy every moment of it. My father had prostate cancer. My grandfather, two great uncles, died from it. I wish I'd known about the family history, but it just wasn't talked about. My name's Lonnie. I had my prostate removed in May of 1995, and I'm still here. So there is life after prostate cancer. I'm living proof. One thing I would want to share with any man that thinks that he may have prostate cancer is number one, get it checked. Secondly, you have time after the diagnosis. Read, learn, go talk with your doctor, and make some decisions. Because knowledge is power. It cannot be understated, you know. Prostate cancer is the most common cancer among men in Michigan. If you've been diagnosed, talk with your health care provider about your options and visit prostatecancerdecision.org today. Sponsored by the Michigan Department of Community Health, the Michigan Cancer Consortium, and the Michigan Association of Broadcasters. Hi, this is Juan Cunningham of the Suitcase Farmers coming at you from Lansing, Michigan, and we love listening to World Footprints Radio. 
And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. One of Michigan's crown jewels is Mackinac Island, a place of my childhood. Since the late 19th century, the Grand Hotel has welcomed the famous from presidents as well as families from all over to experience the grandeur of Michigan's most iconic building. With the world's longest porch, the Grand Hotel offers some of the most impressive views of Michigan and the Great Lakes, which define its geography. Hotel historian and concierge Bob Taggetts takes us on a journey inside the rich history and traditions of the Grand Hotel. Well, I'm joined by Bob Taggetts, resident historian at the Grand Hotel on Mackinac Island. Bob, thank you so much for joining us on World Footprints. It's a pleasure being here. So take us on a grand historical tour of this iconic hotel. Well, we're just a rare place in the world today. This genre of hotel, there's many of them at one time. In 1904, there was over 1,200 large wood frame hotels, big ones, 200 rooms or more. Most or two-thirds were built by transportation companies to get the wealthy mm-hmm. Victorians out of the hot, dirty industrial cities for the entire summer. The rarity of this institution is this. Uh, there was over 1,200 in There's 12 left standing. There's 10 open. Two are closed. One we may lose. One we're hopefully going to keep. Of the 10 that are open and running, we're the last family-owned. We've been owned or associated with the same family since 1919. We've been owned solely by the same family since 1933. So the original uh, owner, the gentleman who purchased it after the the transportation companies, uh, including, I think, uh, Lake Erie State, or there uh, there were several that I I read about, he's a member of the Musser family? Yeah. Yep, there was, uh, several different, there was a couple different owners after the transportation companies, but it, it's a tough place to make a living back then. Our season today is six months long, and we're closed for six months. Back then, the entire season was two months long. So to oh. make a profit to sustain it, now if you're subsidized by transportation, it was easy to do. A young fellow came in, in 1919 as a simple desk clerk, actually. He wanted to work here so bad, he offered to work for free. Uh, he said, you can feed me, house me at the end of the season. You can pay me what you think I'm worth. And that's W. Stewart Woodfill. Worked his way up to front desk manager, managing the hotel. He had an opportunity to buy into it. He bought a third of the hotel in 1925. I don't know if he foresaw the Depression, but he wisely sold out his third ownership in 27. And the hotel mm-hmm. went bankrupt with the Depression, and he bought us out of bankruptcy in 1933 as the only bidder, and it's been 81 years in the same family. And Mr. Musser... Uh the second, I mm-hmm. believe, purchased it in... 1979. He okay. came, he grew up here. His father died when he was a young boy, and Mr. Woodfill kind of took him under his wing, if you will. He spent summers here. After he graduated from Dartmouth in 51, he asked his uncle for a job. His uncle was a tough guy. He made him work all the departments of the hotel. He had to work twice the hours of any department he transferred into the, for the first two hours, so he really, really would learn the hotel business. And then he bought it from his uncle in 1979, and now uh, Mr. Musser's son, Dan Musser, is the president and chairman of the hotel. Mm-hmm. Now, let's go back a little bit to the, the beginnings of this hotel. Ian commented as we traveled um, across the, uh, the way here from Mackinac City by ferry, he commented that the hotel actually resembled a, a ship of some sort. I mean, was the, who was the architect, and it, was it purposefully designed to resemble a, a ship? Oh, it's a great question. Not purposely to, to resemble a ship, but just the style itself. We were built at the, the peak of the Victorian Queen Anne Revival style, the towers, the turrets. Um, but believe it or not, our architects, Mason and Rice, and they were out of Detroit, said they wanted something to look elegant 100 years from now. 
and they decided on the classic revival, the Tuscan columns, because they said 100 years from now, it'll look right on this bluff. And when you come by boat today, you can see the Victorian summer cottages on the east and west bluff, and you can certainly date those mm -hmm. to a period. But when you see this hotel, this long 660-foot long front porch, it just looks like it belongs here. And many guests make the comment that where a ship doesn't go anywhere, with the meals, the entertainment, uh, and also where no tipping, whereas a ship will tip from the right to the left. Right. Bad joke, bad joke. <laughs> without the seasickness. That's right. Though. No seasickness here. I love it. <laughs> so, um, when, did, when did the longest porch in the world um, become established? Because the, the, the hotel has actually been growing throughout mm -hmm. the years. I mean, I think recently you just added a new wing um, to, to, the, to, the, to the property. And so when was the longest porch established? We've had 33 major expansions since we opened. We opened initially with 200 guest rooms, and we now have 386 guest rooms. The front of the hotel um, was 440 feet long, and now it's 660 feet long. Really but cow. the greatest myth and the most fun story about our long front porch was W. Stuart Woodfield, when he bought us out of bankruptcy, uh, he didn't have money for advertising to promote the hotel. And there was a little ad, a little cartoon in newspapers across the country that he was fascinated with. It was called Ripley's Believe It or Not, sponsored by Robert L. Ripley. And he... Um, decided if he could get our hotel in there that we could get free advertising in, in the major newspapers in the United States and many in Europe. So in 1936, he drew a picture of the front of the hotel, and he sent it off. He invited Robert L. Ripley here, who, who never came, and he sent it off, and he drew a long front porch, and under it he said two things. He said the largest summer resort hotel in the world and the longest front porch in the world at 880 feet. And we didn't think much of it. Like mm -hmm. a miracle, the following year, right before we opened in the spring of 1937, they published it. And it was established, the world's longest front porch, 880 feet, the largest summer hotel. I stayed at this hotel probably 15 years before I came here the first time, and that was always my quote. In 1981, they were going to do a television show here, and they asked mm -hmm. what made us unique. And we said, oh, you know, the longest front porch in the world at 880 feet. And they asked if we were in the Guinness Book of World Records. And we said no. And they said, well, at least apply for it. If you apply for it, then we can put it in our television program. And we're like, well, it's great to promote the hotel. Mm -hmm. A company came, actually a company, a, a local college came. They brought the state-of-the-art measuring after we closed the hotel. And they measured the 880-foot long front porch, and it was 626 feet long. So we got, believe it or not, we got free publicity around the country because it was published in USA Today. Ripley was wrong, so it worked. So <laughs> it's, it's a very long front porch, but probably not the longest in the world. But it is 660 feet. There's 100 rocking chairs out there and just 1,600 geraniums on the front porch alone. Oh, my goodness. Now, the, the porch also, uh, back in the day when it was built, there was something called the flirtation walk. What, what was that? Well, the reason we were really built to get people out of the really filthy industrial city, so the biggest mm -hmm. thing, there was a lot of attractions on Mackinac Island, but that cool breeze, the clean water. So during the course of the day, the social center of the hotel was the front porch. The two balconies above the main doors were, were built to hold orchestras so they could serenade you. There were sports out there, tea dances, cake dances. And when the fort was open, you know, a lot of people don't know Mackinac Island was the second national park after Yellowstone, 1875, and Michigan's very first state park 20 years later in 1895. So when the fort was open and running, the managers, of the, and I don't know how they did it, but the managers of the hotel uh, required that the officers walk the front porch twice a day in full military regalia with swords and feathers mm. and such. And my favorite, the only quote I ever saw was an in-house letter that said they loved to do it because it made the girls from St. Louis giggle. 
And at some point they decided that wasn't the best use of taxpayer money and they discontinued it. But the flirtation walk was out there and many relationships and marriages came for our flirtation walks. Oh my goodness. Uh, any notable ones we may know Probably about? Probably not anybody that we would know at the time, but mm -hmm. guests would come here and certainly there would be eligible young ladies and a, a handsome soldier was a good match at the time. Now one thing I was surprised to read uh, as well is that there used to be a casino on site here and Mark Twain actually lectured uh, or gave a, a, a speech at the uh, casino and charged a dollar admission, which is, you know, I'm sure, sure it was sure. a ton of money back in the day, but I would he, say thank you to him. Yeah, <laughs> oh, it was wonderful. Yeah, he, um, um, he came long before. We had a, a room called the casino, but in a hotel like this, a casino was one step below a formal ballroom, and since we were a summer resort hotel, we had gambling at the, the hotel much, much later, and so the casino, which is now our theater today, was never used for that. Mark Twain had fallen on some hard times. Uh, he had made some very poor investments, and mm -hmm. almost against his will, they put him on a, a boat to do a tour of the Great Lakes, and if he did well, um, people paying a dollar ahead to hear him ramble on. Uh, they were going to send him to Europe, which they did. So we recreated that. One of the most fun things we ever did here at the 100th anniversary, we had actors and book signings and mm. we did uh, plays here. So the Mark Twain connection is very strong. Bob, one of the things about uh, coming to the Grand Hotel is the history. And as you walk through here, there are portraits, there are articles that go back decades uh, that tell the story about this place from so many different perspectives and when people come here they really are taking a trip back in time and it and it allows uh, kind of a, a mini history lesson you get uh, you see all of these great national and international figures who have passed through here you see the Michigan history in terms of the political people the universities and everyone who's gathered here and, and it's and and it's special for me as someone who's lived in Michigan uh, to come here and see a little bit of of uh, my travels too, and uh, the places that I've been here, and, and I think that makes this special uh, and keeps it fresh for people uh, who keep coming back. I'm sure. Yeah, we. Uh, that's our goal. Is is we're a museum, but we're a museum that doesn't have velvet ropes or historical markers. I mean, our goal is that when you come here today, is you're not looking at history from the outside. You, you check in just like a guest did 128 seasons before, and you participate in a present ongoing history. You know, we're an elegant hotel, but we don't like to take ourselves too seriously. So our history is on the walls, and then, you know, I always say if you're going to walk the walk and talk the talk, there's only a couple of hotels in the country that have a historian. So I do lectures and tours. So we try to make it formal but informal. We're still a fun place. Conventions are a big part of, of our business here today, the evolution, the survival of the hotel, and mm -hmm. we're most proud to put that on the walls in the hotel. Mm -hmm. And speaking of resident historians, I want to congratulate you because you just won a very prestigious award from the Historic uh, Hotels Association. Um, as the as as a historian, congratulations to you. Historian of the year, yes. Historian it's, of the it's year. It's kind of like being the tallest midget in the winter. <laughs> the tallest I always say, but no, it was quite an honor, and it was very very unexpected. And and I was uh, being elected by your peers. It, it was a true honor. Indeed, indeed, kind of like the Pulitzer Prize, I guess. Huh? <laughs> okay, we'll go with that. <laughs> <laughs> now, this property actually, um, you know, received a, a two historic desert. Uh, designations, one from the state of Michigan, and I know, uh, and that came before the national uh, designation, uh, I think in 1989? Yeah, I believe yes. that's correct. Mm -hmm. And in how has that, 
helped in the evolution or, you know, in the outreach uh, that the hotel seeks. It certainly has. Um, it gives us certainly, you know, a credibility. But by the same token, the family that, that has owned us through generations have done their very best to keep the architectural integrity of this building together, uh, to be a part of the community, to be part of the state. You know, we the people that own it um, don't necessarily just see it as a business. I mean, we're a six-month operation. We make a night's living for 709 employees and a family, but they literally are stewards to this institution that it's owned by the people that have been coming three and four generations to this hotel. So it's a different philosophy of not how can we do it cheaper, how can we get by with this. It's true value is in passing it on to the next generation. The hotel started doing something really uh, unique, I think, um, in branding some of the, the guest rooms or labeling some of the guest rooms after um, first ladies. And, and my understanding is that you started with a lot of the contemporary first ladies versus, um, you know, the older ones from the 20s oh, sure. and, and what have you. Um, when did that start and, and why the focus on the contemporary first ladies versus Colin the Barney. Colin Barney's our designer, the owner of Dorothy Draper, and, and they've been here since 78, started decorating here in 79. They've done, or the company's done, every inch of the hotel. And when we do expansions, uh, we, and again, we try to be formal but not too formal, so we try to get the whole spectrum. And a lot of it, I think people think there's a grand plan. There's really not. Um, Colton Varney uh, worked for four first ladies in the White House. And when he was decorating okay. there, he did the, the personal quarters for the Carter administration. And um, he became fascinated with the choices of first ladies' design and decoration. Mm -hmm. So we had a couple for past first ladies that had never stayed here, Dolly Madison Suite. Um, and he became fascinated with it. And as we did expansions, with the first lady suite came up and he said, I'll tell you what, let's for the first time do five living first ladies and get their input and get, you know, have them, what are you, what's your favorite color? What's your favorite design? What's your favorite room in the White House? Uh, we have the, the White House portraits in each one uh, from the first ladies. And it was just an amazing collaboration to have them choose their colors, look, approve this chandelier over that chandelier. And they truly, truly reflect their personality. Mm -hmm. I know my uh, former boss, I work for W, <laughs> uh -huh. and um, so his wife, Laura Bush, sure. actually I think is the last room that um, was designed. Are there any plans for Michelle Obama room? I'm, I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hoping, I'm, I'm probably not on the ground floor in that decision making, but I, it would certainly be an honor to do that. The, the Laura Bush suite is one of my favorite Carlton Barney stories with the First Lady Suites because Carlton Barney, if you come around Grand Hotel, it is bright, fun, it is splashy colors. Mm -hmm. They're, you know, the idea is to shock you without clashing and, and to create a memory. We don't sell rooms and food here. We sell summer memories. That's what we create here. We create a, a dramatic summer experience, and that's certainly part of the uh, the whole Carlton Varney, Dorothy Draper. So Carlton Varney in 1979 banned the use of the color beige here at Grand Hotel. He does not like brown. He does not like beige. And he said the longest dramatic pause he ever had on a telephone is when he called Bush, and he was talking to her, and they were building a new place, I believe, in Texas. And he said she was very excited about having the suite created, and he said, what's your favorite color? And she says, I just love beige. Oh, and he dear. said it was the longest dramatic pause. And Carlton Varney says, what's your second favorite color? And she said, turquoise. Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I look at this place and I and I'm saying, geez, you've got to spend a ton on painting this place. You've got all of this wood here, but it feels fresh, and and I'm sure that's the intent. But I'm sure that's a challenge as as well to try to maintain this this uh, historic structure. 
there's no more expensive building maintained than a large wood frame building per square mm -hmm. foot. And, you know, I've, I've, I've been doing this 29 years. Um, when I started studying this genre of hotel, there was 34 standing. And now there's 12 standing and 10 open. When I came here, I was only going to come a couple years. I wanted to put together a small book on the hotel, and that was 19 years ago. When I saw the love and the care and what this family puts back into the hotel, not only to maintain it to the top standards and the single most expensive building to maintain, but always every year we do upgrades and renovations and modifications and add rooms to the hotel. So it, it, it's a, a pride of ownership, and it is because this family, this is their one and only business. And they work here every single day, side by side with every one of us. And we close for the summer in a week, and that family will go in every nook, cranny, closet, guest room, employee housing, and they'll make notes. And, and one of the, the good things about the hotel is we're open six months, and we're closed six months. And the six months we're closed, they really do put together a wish list of what we can do, keep the hotel to top standards, and also move it forward. So we're created for our guests and by our guests, and we're overseen by a family that has the pride of ownership. And that's why the building is to the standard that it is. Bob, you came here 19 years ago. Everybody, I'm sure, who has worked here for a long time has a Mackinac, or sure. Mackinac Island Grand Hotel story. Sure. What is yours? Well, I, uh, I've actually been here 19 years. I've been doing historic okay. hotels for 29 years. I did 10 years before I came here. Um, I came here just for the building, 100%. I mean, this is what I study. I've been, you know, almost 30 years specifically, turn-of-the-century wood frame vernacular hotels built by transportation companies. Uh, but when I got here, I felt I love islands, so I fell in love with the island. Mm -hmm. I, and I'm not from Michigan. I fell in love with the people from Michigan. And just the whole uniqueness of this island, that everything moves, the horse culture that's not some novelty at your county fair. It's everything that moves, moves behind a horse here. Mm -hmm. So it, when you talk about stepping into history, you, you know, you take a boat across here, you get off in a little town town looks very similar to what it did. 82% of the island is park. It'll never be developed. The roads, the trails, the natural features. You take a 100-year-old carriage up to a hotel and have a five-course dinner with an orchestra playing. I, I kind of found home. Absolutely. I, I and, and, of course, you know, the Michigan natives, as being one myself, you know, <laughs> very partial to that. Um, now, you know, over the years, I, I have to know... There have been a lot of famous people stay here, certainly, you know, the first ladies and what have you. And so if these walls could talk, what quirky, funny stories would they tell us about some of the guests who have been here? Well, there's been so many over the years, and it's a percentage of who have come here. We've been luckily visited by five presidents since we've been here as well. We've had a couple movies made here, so we have the connection with the movies, and even mm -hmm. some people that were in the movies, uh, uh, this time for Keeps with Esther Williams and Xavier Cougat, Jimmy Durante, Jimmy Durante brought Jack Benny here, and then other people came kind of of note. Um, but it, it's a little obscure things I love the best. We have a guest registry from the late teens, early 20s, and there was a baseball guy came here, and he said, oh, are there any baseball greats from that period in there? And I said, well, I don't, I don't know, and I don't think so, but you're welcome to look. And he found the fella that delivered the money when the Chicago Black Sox, the fixed game, uh, was in our registry, and they found out that they were worried that he was going to talk. And they hid him out somewhere. No one knew where they hid this guy. And he was on our registry, and he stayed here. They were hiding him out because they were so afraid that he would rat him out because he carried the actual pay from the crooks to the other crooks. And uh, so that was just a little thing like that. And oh, then, my. You know, Frank Lloyd Wright's <laughs> grandson came here, and I'm a huge Frank Lloyd Wright fan. Mm -hmm. We made the connect. We were selling a Frank Lloyd Wright Tiffany vase here. And, and so to have Frank Lloyd Wright's son here, 
or grandson here with it. With just just little things like that, to me, are, are just as wonderful as the big names and the big celebrities. You know, that sure. may come. I mean, it's a minority of our business celebrities, but it certainly does does people love hearing about it, and it gives a great credibility to the hotel. Mm-hmm. And and you know, and I'm sure as a historian, you know, just having uh, those people kind of uh, add to the history of the, uh, the place that, you know, the color uh, of, uh, of the uh, hotel has to mean something, too, as a historian. Is there a period in this uh, hotel's history that really resonates with you and the, the growth of the hotel or just the evolution of the hotel? Is there a period that resonates with you? There's a lot of periods that do that what we did to survive, to keep our doors open, to me, is the most fascinating part of our story. Twice we were going to be torn down. We were within months of being torn down in 1910 and 1933. Um, World War II about killed us. Uh, tourism dropped 90% here. The strategic importance to get the raw materials from the Sulox, 50 miles north of here, uh, down to the factories to build the war machines. Uh, very few hotels, especially that have been operating for 128 seasons, can say they've never closed their doors, and we never have. I mean, during World War II, we dropped the rates down to the original rate. Uh, original mm-hmm. rates were three to five dollars a night in '87. They've gone to twenty-four to thirty-five dollars a night. We closed two floors of the hotel. Uh, this year, we hit a record with seven hundred nine employees. During World War II, they ran the hotel with fifty-nine employees. July eleventh, nineteen thirty-nine, uh, was one of the darkest days ever. Uh, we had eleven paying guests. This is peak season, July here for our hotel. Mm-hmm. We had eleven paying guests, and they were served by four hundred employees. And we never closed the doors. So that evolution, some of it not so pretty during Prohibition. We didn't have a dry day in this hotel. Kept us open. We had gambling in the back of the house. We had a, a roulette room with a revolving wall in it. So we've done what's necessary, but we have never through. You know, when the last economic downturn happened and everything, mm-hmm. oh, what are you going to do in a high-end hotel? I said, we survived World War One, World War Two, the Great Depression. This is just a little speed bump. We're the only hotel on this island. We're the only hotel on this island that actually added jobs uh, during the economic downturn. Now, you know, speaking of uh, kind of the, the dark history, well, I want to touch on uh, dark history in uh, this country sure. you know, during the civil rights sure. movements and what have you. Um, today, you know, we are pleasantly surprised to see uh, a very multicultural environment with a lot of the service staff who comes from other countries. And, and I think, you know, I would think that they're brand ambassadors for the hotel when they go back to, to their countries. Um, and it's nice to see that integration. But during, you know, the, the early riots, during segregation, how how did the hotel, or were guests of um, other ethnicities welcomed here? Oh, sure. They were. We always have been, uh, because Michigan is in general, because mm-hmm. of the, the population. You know, we were built, a lot of people don't understand this, we were built for a very small group of people, with the ultra-wealthy, the mover, the shaker, the robber baron, heroes of villains, if you were, not even really for them, for their children. They were born into money, born into wealth, and they came and they stayed the whole summer season. They were here for two months. That was it. Most of these, many of these, I shouldn't say most, but many of these resort hotels did not evolve as travelable. When that very wealthy, unbridled capitalism class slowly died away, the long-term stay visitor, mm-hmm. a middle class rose up. And, and there's no more dramatic place than in Michigan with Henry Ford doubling the wage to say all of a sudden you can now afford the automobile and you travel. Many of these resorts continued catering to these wealthy long-term stays when they died out and a middle class rose up. And when that middle class rose up, the smart people, and I'm not saying we always did it well, we've made some horrible mistakes, but to figure out that you've got to serve everybody, mm-hmm. everybody. And that's my favorite thing today about the hotel is I think the greatest misconception within our own state is we're a big snob and we're hugely expensive. The people who own this hotel are the most down-to-earth people there are. 
I mean, we're a solid four-star hotel, and for many people in the Midwest, this is the best place you know they're going to stay. And we want to we want to not only meet but exceed their expectations. So mm-hmm. serving everybody is really how we figured out how to make it work. Mm-hmm. And and I'm sure the uh, the the Hollywood influence here has you know really helped. Um, even beyond the state of Michigan, uh, inform people about the Grand Hotel somewhere in time sure. with Christopher Reeves and, and, and Jane Seymour, one of my favorite movies, <laughs> and um, Esther Williams and, oh, and Jimmy Durante back in 1947, I believe. That was huge. That brought us out of the Depression. It really did. We had no earthly idea, truthfully, the power of Hollywood. And then they shot this time for keeps in 1947. They shot in the summer, shot in the winter. She turned out dozens of swimming films. We had no idea it was released right before we opened 1949. Literally, people beat our doors down. 1950 was the highest occupancy rate we ever had. Mm-hmm. And in 51, we started legitimately making money as a hotel. We had treaded water for so long. In fact, we had a suite on the third floor for Esther Williams her whole life, named after her. We were so appreciative. She just passed away last year, and she was mm-hmm. a wonderful lady. Somewhere in Time is the same thing. It was shot here. Uh, it didn't do well when it was released. It was released during an actor's strike. Their planned release of a smaller theaters then building to larger theaters never really happened. It lost money. Almost as soon as it closed, the momentum picked up. Mm-hmm. Picked up. And you, you hear the Orient one was re-released, and this is a figure that I just am amazed at. It has the second largest fan club and following of any single release movie after Gone with the Wind ever produced in the United States. Oh, my goodness. Now, how did, they, how did Hollywood find the hotel? The original book was was titled Bid Time Return, and it was written not for us. He was a Hollywood producer in the book, and he was leaving Hollywood, and it was written for the Del Coronado, probably the most famous yes. turn-of-the-century wood frame hotel. And they went to do the still scenes to set up for this. And when they filmed it, the Del Coronado's right next to San Diego, the mm-hmm. Navy base, and planes flew over, and car horns, and, 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 and high wires, and they said, you know what? is there any place in the United States where there's a big old wood frame hotel without cars? And we, of course, said, oh, pick us, pick us, pick us. So <laughs> we brought him here in the dead of winter. We had a full house booked when it was filmed in 79, so we put him up at a, another resort. Um, mm-hmm. We transformed the hotel every day between 1912 and 1979. We had an unwritten policy that anybody wanted their money back, we could give it to them. And only one couple wanted their money back because of the disruption, because the majority of the people ended up in the movie, and they just loved it. So it, it is it is snowballed that this coming weekend is our Somewhere in Time weekend, and it's a full house, two-thirds of people dressed in period clothing. I mean, it's an amazing spectacle to see. That movie has touched so many people. Yes, indeed. Well, it certainly touched me, and, and, and Bob, I thank you so much for uh, taking both Ian and I on a tour of one of my childhood uh, favorite places. I used to come up here every summer as a kid, and so I feel like a little kid in a candy store right now and, and really enjoy just, just uh, talking about the history. Thank you so much. It's an honor having you back Coming up, a trip on the fast ferry from Mackinac Island back to the mainland of Michigan as we learn about the legacy of a Michigan family, the Shepler family, as Tanya takes the wheel of our ferry under the watchful eye of Chris Shepler. And as we have uh, Tanya driving here, we're going to go right towards that, that uh, white water tower right okay. there. So that's your, that's your aiming point. Okay. Straight on. Yeah. Okay. Next, as World Footprints continues. My name is Joe Hersher. I am from Kankakee, Illinois, and I love traveling with World Footprints. Human trafficking is the fastest-growing criminal industry in the world. One of the greatest myths is that human trafficking is only a third-world problem. But neither education, wealth, age, race, nor social standing protects one from becoming a victim of human trafficking. Awareness and action are key to fighting this crime against humanity. 
to report human trafficking or to learn more, call the National Human Trafficking Hotline at 1-888-3737-888. Collectively, we can put an end to human trafficking one step at a time. I have a dream today. Hi, I'm Isaac Newton Ferris, Jr., President and CEO of the King Center in Atlanta. My Uncle Martin's words still inspire us today, but his vision cannot be fully realized unless we join together to strengthen our communities through everyday acts of service to others. Honor his memory this King Day and throughout the year by volunteering in your community. This message brought to you by the Corporation for National and Community Service, the King Center, NAB, and this station. Hey, this is Amy. I'm from Manitoba. Woo, Manitoba. I love listening to World Footprints Radio. Rocks my socks. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. The Scheffler family is deeply intertwined in the history of Michigan and Mackinac Island. As the namesake behind Shepler's Mackinac Island Ferry, several generations of Shepler's have transported legions to and from Mackinac Island from Mackinac City and St. Ignace. Chris Shepler shares his family's legacy, their passion for customer service, philanthropy, and he gives me a thrill of a lifetime as I get to pilot the ferry that took us from the island to Mackinac City. Chris Shepler, you're you're a third generation captain of the Shepler Ferry Company, is that right? Yes, that that is correct. And my grandfather started our company back in the the early 40s and he did so with a six-passenger speedboat that he built, and there was a need. He was a fisherman in these areas okay. for, for many, many years, and his grandfather, well, actually his father, my great-grandfather, was a, uh, a captain here on the Straits of Mackinac and drove the state ferries to and from St. Ignace with the car ferries and the railroad cars, and, and uh, so that's what he did. So they were based in this area, grew up in this area, and my grandfather felt the need to, to offer a charter service because back then, you know, at 6 o'clock, that was it. You know, the last boat to the island, and, and now we're running till you know, 10.30 or 11 o'clock at night. So he ran kind of a charter service. They'd call him at all hours of the morning, and he'd come down, start the boat up, and, and head, to, head to the island with the clientele, usually for the grand, mm-hmm. you know, um, and uh, so they did that, built another six-passenger speedboat. My dad got his license, and then they went to two cabin cruisers over a you know a 12-year period of time, and and then um, things kind of morphed into bigger, faster, stronger, and and uh, our first high-speed planing hull, which is a, a boat like you're on right now, um, was built in 19. Well, it was delivered in 1969, and that was kind of our, you know, if you really want to put a date or a time on it, it would be the the year of 1969 when we really became um, who we are today, or at least a, a very, you know, infinite uh, of who we are today. So. Now, what made you decide to continue the family business? I know your grandfather is one of those rare individuals yeah. who was born on Mackinac Island, um, but. I'm sure you know you and your father and you know mm-hmm. your 
younger siblings went off in, in perhaps yeah. being at a college and looked at other things. What made you decide to continue yeah. the family's, your family's legacy? That's a, that's a very good question because actually I've never really been asked that. But, but uh, just quick thinking about that, my, my growing up, I, I, you know, I was one of those kids that jumped in my dad's truck in the, in the summer months when we were out of school and, and, and came to Mackinac with him every day. We, we live in a little town called Harbor Springs, which is 35 miles south of here. And, and uh, back in those early days, I remember eating pancakes and eggs for breakfast, lunch, and dinner because we didn't, we didn't have anything at that time. We lived in a trailer. I had a great life eating ice cream cones and swimming and goofing around on boats. But uh, we were, you know, we were just starting out, didn't have a lot going on. And, and uh, uh, I went to high school in Harbor Springs, and we moved to Harbor Springs when I was like four. And, and uh, as the business grew, we went from a rusted-out trailer that we lived into to the house that actually I own now and, and bought up from my parents. And so... I uh, went to school, went to college, and, and then I ended up racing in the 1987 America's Cup, the, the sailboat race down in, in Australia. So I got involved with that team for two and a half years of my life, racing all over the world um, for that two and a half years. And then I continued racing professionally for another three, four years, uh, again, all over the world for, for other people. And, and uh, so that was kind of my life. So there was a time when I was not involved with the company. And uh, once the 87 America's Cup ended, I came back to the States, got involved with a couple other programs, not America's Cup programs, but maxi boats and things of that sort. And so I continued to do that, worked a little bit, but did a lot of sailing, competitive sailing. And then once I was done living out of my suitcase, um, I came back and started working here full time in 1991 and, and found that, uh, you know, this is what I want to do. I don't want to live anywhere else, number one. And number two, I don't want to do anything else. And, and then when I quit sailing, I, I really quit. I, I haven't been on a sailboat in 18 years, really. And, and I think because if I didn't do what I did, if I wasn't having the availability to get out and be on the water, um, because it is my love, it, uh, I, I'd still be doing, I'd still be racing sailboats at, at right now. So with that, then our kind of our next step is we moved into who we are today. Again, um, we had, a, we needed to get into a succession plan. And I didn't, don't mean that when I was 28 years old, I wanted to take this thing over and, you know, say goodbye to everyone else who built the thing. But it was, it was, you know, in my 40s, it was, you know, I'm 52 right now, but in my 40s, it, it, uh, we needed to start thinking of that with regards to the financial end of this company and with the debt tax and things of that sort. And we just finished, two years ago, we finished up our succession plan, which took five years, and and um, and it's uh, I, I couldn't be happier with what I do. I love who I work with. I love the, the office that I have, you know, on occasions, and, <laughs> and, uh, and I love northern Michigan. Now, of course, everything about uh, the Shepler operation is focused on customer service. Uh, clearly, you put a premium on uh, safety in, in, in terms of getting people back to and from the mainland and Mackinac Island, but you guys really have an impressive operation in terms of just how you go about serving the customers. How did that come about? 
particularly given the humble origins of the company, because you really are focused on making things very convenient for travelers here. Well, first, thanks for noticing, and, and we do. We, we take uh, a, a lot of pride, a lot of time, a lot of money and effort into into um, into uh, the th that exact thing of customer service. And I think it all started back in um, back in uh, when we started to go to Disney World as a family back in the mid '70s and, and early '80s. We we were in um, uh, we would go down and. Spend, uh, you know, it started out three days, and then it was a week, and then it was two weeks, and then it was uh, uh, all of, you know, a month after a while. And uh, and as we have uh, Tanya driving here, we're going to go right towards that that uh, white water tower right okay. there. So that's your that's your aiming point. Okay, straight straight on. Yeah. Okay. And okay. we love what Disney did. We love their quality service, attention to detail, all of that stuff. So as we found out that that's what we liked, we got into, um, you know, going to seminars, going to, to actual classes and finding out how they did that and implemented all of those things from hiring to inter the interview process, where we do our interviews. It's, it's uh, a little different, perhaps. We bring the, the, the cast member or potential cast member into our room that we interview and the first thing that we do or first thing that they know on one side of the room is all the awards that we've won for quality service and other things and appointments that have been made by either governors or or his cabinet um, to one of our cast members and then that's on one side the other side is all of our uniforms that we have and the cost of all those uniforms and then they're shown a 20-minute video that's very black and white in nature as well as the content of, of you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, but you can do this, can do this, can do this, and therefore you have this, this, and this. Um, you know, 20% of our potential cast members leave when they decide, ah, this is too much for me. And then we go into the actual interview process and take the helm over? No, unless you oh want to, other things other things you want to do, go for <laughs> it, and, and uh, whatever you feel comfortable with is fine with me. This is a very sensitive um, rudder. Yeah, and, and I think the sensitivity of the rudder is just due to the, um, the, the force. All rudders are behind a propeller, and there's a lot of water going over that rudder, and with the speed and the fact that we are planing right now, you know, we're actually sitting on top of the water. We're drawing less water right now than when we were sitting at the dock. So, it's yeah, she's pretty responsive. Now, Chris, for folks who have not been to the Great Lakes, these these lakes are almost like seas. You have to have a great deal of respect for them, even though they are internal lakes. And you know, as a sailor, and even as a part of shuttling people back and forth on the ferries, that these waters command a great deal of respect. Absolutely, and I think on top of that, um, that any water should garner respect from the pilot or captain or recreationalist. Um, Mother Nature has a, a, a very um, abrupt way of letting you know who's in charge at all times. So as we look at today, it's a beautiful, sunny, flat, calm day. But, uh, you know, it could be a, an, in an hour, you could have, you know, 
things build and, and catch you completely by surprise, whether that be fog or whether that be a different wind uh, direction or wind condition or wave condition. So, yeah, they're, they're, you know, when you've got, you look at Lake Michigan, 400 miles long by 100 miles wide, there's a lot can happen in, in that, uh, in that, in that um, immense area of water. Chris, this um, this passage where we've gone from, or we're going from Mackinac Island to Mackinac City, um, which I believe is about a 16-minute ferry ride. You also go to St. Ignace, which is the first city opposite the uh, Mackinac Bridge or across the Mackinac Bridge. How long is that ferry ride? Yeah, that ferry ride is about 14 minutes, so it's just a, about a mile and a half shorter in distance. And and the interesting thing about Mackinac City versus St. Ignace is uh, it's a little shorter. You go along the shoreline of, of Mackinac, which kind of gives you a little different perspective of the island. I'm not saying it's better or worse. It's just different, um, which is kind of cool. Yeah, the Straits of Mackinac uh, is what we're on right now, and uh, Moran Bay and, and uh, St. Ignace, is, and that's the ice bridge. I don't know if uh, you, you learned about that, but that's where the ice bridge originates from is, is, that, uh, is St. Ignace. I'm going to give you the helm again. Just going to take some more shots back here. All right. But before I step out, I wanted to ask you, one of the things that really impressed um, us about Shufflers is your commitment to philanthropy. And, you know, there's more than one project mm -hmm. that you, your company, yes. Shuffler Ferry, supports. Talk a little, a little bit about your philosophy, your interest in really leaving a legacy of positive footprints. Yeah, thank you for noticing that as well. Yes, we um, within our, our company, we call it our Shuffler's Gives Back program, and we have it on our website and in all the things that we do. And there's a lot of little things, but there's also a couple of big things that we, we uh, believe in, and one of those is the hospital on Mackinac Island. We um, just pledged a, a great deal of money towards that project and very happy about that and but the little things like adopt the highway that we do and we walk two miles of I-75 road um, three times a year to clean it up and we do little things like Alice's Lemonade the the girl that that set up this foundation many years ago before she passed away due to childhood cancer um, where we sell lemonade on the dock for a couple of days and all proceeds go towards that. So those are just a couple of the things, but yes, we are, and I think it's more of, you know, sure, the the, man, the ownership of the company feels that way, but, you know, who pushes that project is our cast members, and they're, they're uh, vested in, in that 110%. Well, Chris, as we make our way into Mackinac City. We uh, thank you so much for being with us on World Footprints and uh, just just for sharing, this is truly beautiful and we encourage anyone to get up here to Mackinac City and Mackinac Island and this beautiful part of Michigan just to experience life uh, up here, up north as we like up, to say. Up north and it's perfect timing Ian because I need someone to blow the horn so you got to come up here and push that little button right there. Very good as we enter Mackinac City. Fantastic. That was a lot of fun, and dear, I must say, uh, you're quite a captain. I know, do I'm you.
little help? I, I know who I'm calling. I uh, tell you, my 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 goodness, is is that one going on the resume too? I think that'll be one of the big talking points for uh, your next act. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us for today's World Footprints Radio Show. All of our shows are archived on our website, so if you've missed a show, or if you want to hear the World Footprints Travel Report giving you the day's breaking travel news, visit us at worldfootprints.com. And while there, click on a social media icon to follow us on your favorite social network at World Footprints. Also, you can now listen to World Footprints on iHeartRadio. We're Tanya Nian Fitzpatrick, and we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada, Banff National Park, natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio, because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps, that are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. This has been a presentation of World Footprints Media, all rights reserved.